Well, my name is Pat, Pat Hansen. I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Church, and I uh, have the privilege of being with you for a few weeks here. Um, I twisted Jeremy's arm um, and uh, asked him if I could spend some time with you all uh, here teaching. Uh, it's something that I love to do, and uh, he loves to teach as well, um, obviously. Uh, and so he and I uh, thought, how about if we do this? How about if I teach here and he'll teach in our Faith Leadership Academy? And uh, so I'll be here with you, and I want to talk about community. Um, and if you look at this picture, which is also on your bulletins, sort of looks idyllic, doesn't it? Cute little houses, little school bus, people off to work in the morning. Probably see Beaver riding his bike down the sidewalk. <laughs> you know, it, it just looks kind of idyllic. And when you think about sort of what community feels like, I don't want to talk necessarily about sort of this type of community that is sort of like a neighborhood or a suburban or an urban kind of community. That's not the community that I have in mind for our series. I'd like us to talk about the community that happens right here, this community in this building. Um, during our time together, we want to talk about the community of the church, because that is a unique kind of community. It's a different type of gathering, and I think it's really important for us to think about how we want this community to reflect the best that Christ is calling us to, and it would be nice if that happened all by itself, like if we could build the type of community that Christ calls us to sort of without trying. That would be great if that would happen. Um, unfortunately, as many of you know, that, that doesn't happen without some intentionality behind it. So therefore, we're going to be talking about that. So how do we build community? And I, what, I, what I liked about this picture, even though I'm not talking about suburbia, what I liked about this picture is that it captures the feel of a neighborhood. And Christ was fond of inviting others to think about, who is your neighbor? and thinking beyond simply my next door neighbor or the people on, on my street or the people in my little burg, but wh who is my neighbor? He was encouraging his listeners to develop a heart that treated everyone with the same kind of deference and help and compassion and kindness that you would to your next door neighbor or the people on your street. That that spirit of neighborliness is something that just pervaded, uh, that would pervade um, your life your environment, that when people interacted with you, they felt like they were your neighbor. That was something that Christ appealed to his followers to replicate. And I thought, yeah. I mean, when I think about living in community, I think about how can I be a neighbor? What does it take for me to be a neighbor that is a blessing and not a curse to the people around me? And if we do that well, we can really create a beautiful place to live and to exist. So again, community, and here we are on church, at church on Sunday morning, and it reminds me of a story of a pastor by the name of Henry. And Henry grew up in a mainline denomination, he didn't teach about how to have a personal relationship with Jesus, so Henry's understanding of how to have a relationship with God was really going to church and participating in spiritual rituals, uh, listening to a sermon, baptism, communion, confirmation, 
Those were Henry's understandings of what it meant to have a relationship with God. Didn't feel very personal, felt more mechanistic, uh, ritualistic. Um, it didn't inspire his heart. Um, it just motivated him to do, do the right thing, which of course is not a bad thing to do the right thing. But unfortunately, that didn't have a lot of traction. And so as Henry grew uh, to maturity during the 60s, uh, he became more and more dissatisfied with his tradition and began, entered, um, he entered the culture in the hippie, hippie movement, and uh, that's, that's kind of where he camped out. And as Henry grew to maturity, he found that he was in love with another um, fellow disgruntled mainliner, so they kind of dropped out and uh, turned on and tuned in and got married and ended up moving out to western Wisconsin, Boscobel area, um, in the middle of the woods, uh, and they were trying to create kind of a hippie paradise uh, for the two of them uh, in their Volkswagen van. Um, and it was idyllic, except that there wasn't an indoor toilet um, and running water in this little um, ancient farmhouse that they purchased because it was the only thing they could afford. Well, Henry found that he needed to get back into the world of civilization, so he uh, went to Chicago and got into seminary, of all things, but not a seminary that believed that the Bible was the word of God, uh, a seminary that believed that the Bible was an archaic book that was put together by misogynist men um, over a great deal of time that didn't tell a true story, perhaps an inspirational story, but not a true story. That was the seminary that he went to, and that was the Bible that he learned about. And so he began teaching that Bible in his Connecticut church, uh, where he ended up. And uh, he, he, his parents, those mainliners who didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, encountered Billy Graham at a re uh, revival for some reason. I don't know how they ended up there. And they became Bible-thumping, Bible-believing Christians. They, they had a born-again experience. And this was something that Henry and his wife, Diane, were horrified by. I mean, anti-intellectual. They had no idea the drivel that they were reciting and believing. And of course, Henry knew better. He'd been to school. Uh, lots of smart people with lots of letters behind their name had helped him understand that the Bible just sort of needs to be kept in its place. Well. One day in his study, Henry was reading the Gospel of John, preparing for a message, reflecting on some of the conversations he'd had with his father and mother. And John 3.16, among other things, spoke to him, and the truth of the Word of God crashed in on him like a tidal wave, and he decided that this is true. This isn't just a book. This is actually God who's intersected with the world. This is true, and I believe it. So he gave his heart to the Lord right there in his study, in his pastoral office. And then he began teaching out of the gospel. And his congregational church that was pretty left of center wasn't accustomed to this kind of treatment of the Bible. And uh, it wasn't long before they asked him to move, move along. So he went to da Dallas Theological Seminary, got uh, a degree, and then he found himself teaching a Bible church out in uh, Connecticut. When I first met Henry, it was because he was the newly minted pastor of our church. 
our church had gone through a bruising time with a pastor who was a strong leader, but he also left bite marks on people who didn't see eye to eye with him, all in the name of Jesus, of course. Um, but that fractured the church, and this was a church that kind of liked, uh, unfortunately, at times, to fight about things, like the color of the carpet or the pews, um, or what kinds of songs we were going to sing. Um, so there was this predisposition already to fight um, a little bit, and then this lightning rod of a pastor had been there. And if you know Henry, and Henry turned into my father-in-law, um, I married his daughter, Jessica. So Jessica, if you know her, she grew up as a pastor's kid. And they came, as Jessica was in junior high, and Henry came right at the heels of a really fractious time in the church history. And he came actually when the lay leadership, a group of them, decided we need to have a revival group come to our church and kind of speak healing and spiritual revival because there's a lot of brokenness here. Good thought. That's a really great thought. And so they brought in this group called Life Action Ministries. Young people, singing group, teaching, preaching, morning, evening sessions, every week, I mean every day of that week, morning, evening. And it was a powerful time. I remember as a kid going, and it was really, really powerful. And one of the things that this group did is that they used the overhead projector screen for more than just teaching or diagramming, which is what we used it for, right? So when we wanted to lay out the different dispensations or talk about revelation, that's what we'd use that for. But they used it for singing, for overhead projector screens that had words on them for the, for the songs that we all knew from the hymnal, and then other choruses that weren't in our hymnals. And I didn't, as a kid, think it was all that radical, different, but not really radical. But there were others who didn't have as charitable a view of that change. So Henry's first week on the job was Life Action Ministries Revival. He saw what was happening with the songs and the overhead. So he decided, I guess we'll just keep doing that. So his first Sunday, instead of using hymnals, they used the overheads. Second Sunday, instead of the hymnals, they used the overheads for singing. Third Sunday, he shows up, and there on the door of the church is a, is a note and says, we've taken your screen and we're not giving it back. <laughs> not sincerely anybody, just, you know, no name. So <laughs> newly minted, third week on the job, Okay, great, I've got a mutiny on my hands. Now this screen wasn't just on a stand. This thing was as big as our, I don't know if you remember, but we used to have, you know, it's like 10 feet wide, and it was in this big wooden box, and it had electrification, so you could push the little button and it would go up and down. So whoever took this screen off, this was at least a two-man job, and it was bolted into the brick wall of the back of the church. You had to unhook the electrical and not blast. I mean, this required some thought, effort, someone with access. They had a key. Who could it be? Well, that screen stayed gone that week, 
the next week. It was gone for a month. And this is a church at the time of people who love Jesus, love the Bible, claim to have a born-again new relationship with Jesus, and are all coming in the morning to hear teaching and to worship together. Now, did everybody take the screen? No. Were there some people who were horrified by that development? Yes, there were. But there were also those who were sitting in hearty agreement. That's right, get that screen out of there. What do you think this is? So that spirit was present, too, in this fractured group of people. And that's a story that reminds me a little bit of the city of Corinth and the church in Corinth, which is where we're going to spend time for the next few weeks, is looking at the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Corinthians was a church filled with people who, perhaps like you, named the name of Jesus. Yes, I am a follower of Jesus, they would say. Yes, I came to know the Lord under Paul's ministry or under Apollos' ministry or some other traveling evangelist. I came to know Jesus as my Savior. All those people gathered in this house church in Corinth, not unlike my home church, not unlike this church. But naming the name of Jesus and choosing to take some time on a Sunday morning to gather together and listen to the word of God and sing and support with your offerings the ministry of the church, that isn't actually church. That's the organizational components that help church happen. But church is something different. It's actually a living organism, and it's something unique. And the Holy Spirit has a blueprint or a plan for how this collected, disparate group of believers can unify into the church. But for us to think that attending on a Sunday morning makes us the church would be a mistake. Not in the, not in the way that Paul thinks about the church, not the, the way that Paul thinks about the organism of the church, how all these different people become one under the direction and empowerment of the Holy Spirit is alive and working in each and every believing person. It's that that enlivens and unifies the church. So Corinthians were a, a church that had had some difficulties. It was a church that had some factions and fractions in it, not unlike Henry's church that he was inheriting. Corinthians, and I, I would just say it's helpful to have a little bit of a view of Corinth in its, in its setting historically. So just some background information on Corinth. Um, it used to be a Greek city-state about the 5th century B.C. is when things were happening in Corinth. And then the Romans came and in about 146 B.C. wiped out Corinth, actually leveled it. Like nobody lived there for a century. It was just rabbits and tall grass and wrecked buildings. Um, so that was Corinth for a century. And then this guy named Julius Caesar came along and decided, hey, this would be a great place for us to build a city. So let's rebuild Corinth. So old Corinth had a pretty, 
crazy reputation, sort of like uh, maybe New Orleans, Fat Tuesday, kind of, or maybe Las Vegas, sort of like that was old Corinth, like Greek Corinth. So new Corinth, that turned into like a boom town. You know your geography at all, you recognize Turkey there. This is how things were laid out in the first century uh, AD, BC. And uh, what you see here in that little red line, that's Paul's second missionary journey. He had three of them. He started in Antioch. You can see that on the right side of that map. That's the starting point. And then he worked his way all the way over to, you can see it on the left-hand side there, Achaia. And there on a little isthmus is Corinth. So Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth, and it actually became a boom town because it was a lot safer for you to sail your boat from Venice or from Rome down into that little bay and then unload all your cargo, carry it across land for four miles. It was safe. Another reason why having a city with a garrison of soldiers there to protect it from thieves, pirates, roving bands. So you take it across the isthmus, you get another boat on the other side, and you've just taken a safe shortcut uh, to Asia or anywhere else you want to go. So having that city there with that kind of link um, just created kind of like a boom town, a little bit like what shale oil has done for some of the communities in the West, just boom, exploding. And so one of the things that Rome did to jumpstart the growth of Corinth was they took Roman freedmen and women. So you got a slave, and then you've got one step above that, which is a freed, freed man or woman. And there are people who have left slavery, uh, typically because they've worked out or been set free from their situation. But they couldn't hold any political office. So they're free to do what they want, but they are not free to participate in the political system. So when you get people like that who have no access to real meaningful political change, they often become rabble-rousers. So that's what they were, especially in Rome, in the slums, they were rabble-rousers. So one of the things that Rome did was to grab a bunch of these people and stick them in Corinth. But you've also got merchants and artisans and slaves and philosophers and all kinds of other people coming to Corinth. So if you were to visit Corinth when Paul was there, it was probably about 100 years since it's been reestablished. So everything was new. Lots of energy, lots of money. And Paul visited Corinth in its heyday. Uh, it was a place that lots and lots of people wanted to be. Um, Paul ended up staying in Corinth for about 18 months, which is longer than he stayed most places. Because in most places, he got run out of town. Run out of town because the very first thing Paul did, if you know Paul's ministry at all, any city that he went to, the very first place he went, does anybody know like what group of people he'd visit first? Some of you know, I hear it. The synagogue, right? He'd go to the Jews first, and he'd preach to the Jews about Jesus, that Jesus is Messiah. The Messiah we've all been waiting for, that's Jesus. And he would preach that in their synagogues on Sabbath. And they would listen to him, and in some places they were willing to listen more. Other places they were not willing to listen very much at all. And once they figured out what Paul was really saying, that they needed to leave all of their old traditions behind what they believed would make them right, the law, and trust in Jesus alone, 
That was enough for most of them, and they kicked Paul out of the synagogue. And then Paul would leave the synagogue, and he'd go find Gentiles, who are any people, ethnic people group that aren't Jewish. That's what Paul, when he says Gentiles, that's who he's talking about, anyone who's not Jewish. Then Paul would spend time with Gentile people, and Jews and Gentiles would come to name Jesus Christ as Messiah. They would trust in him, and then he would start a church, and then he'd move on if he had time to leave on his own terms. Many times he did. In Corinth, he did, wonderfully, and he was able to stay for 18 months. So he really created a sticky church, meaning this had a lot of traction. Corinth was a church in the ancient world, um, in the start of Christianity, that was one of those pillar churches. They were not going anywhere. And that's because of Paul's interaction with them. So if you know anything about Paul's writings, Paul writes lots of letters in the New Testament to churches, and he's almost always writing to a church because of a problem or problems in the church, and that's the occasion for the writing. And in Corinth, that's a problem. Is, there is a problem, and he's writing to address some of those problems. Now, if you were sitting through in the summertime my series in Galatians, you may remember that Paul's concern about the churches in Galatia, and you can see Galatia on our map there, sort of in the right-hand side, right off the center, bunch of churches there, and their problem was that the gospel had gotten distorted, that there was this false gospel that had gotten introduced. So Paul was up in arms and writing about correcting that distorted gospel. Here, the Corinthian church hadn't distorted the gospel wonderfully. That was not the problem. And so Paul writes to the Corinthian church about their problem, which isn't distorting the gospel. It's the fact that they've got factionalism. They've got individuals rather than a unity. They've got people moving in their own direction rather than being brought together under the love and unity of Jesus Christ. So Paul is hoping, can I, can I help you guys turn from independent contractors into a cooperative? Can, can you all yoke yourselves together and submit to one another in something that's bigger than your own personal agenda for what you have to get out of it. And that was the appeal, and that is the appeal in Corinthians. It's a perfect book for us to be looking at. When Paul wants to talk about community, he, he starts in the same place that he starts every contact, when he visited the, Sabbath, uh, the, uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath, when he visits with Gentiles. What does he always start with? always starts with the gospel. And that's the cornerstone of any community that Paul wants to build. So it's not enough to have people attending a building. It's got to be people who have a saving, transforming understanding of the gospel. Paul calls that the good news. The good news and the gospel are interchangeable terms. Those are synonyms, the gospel or good news. Um, I would encourage you to read through 1 Corinthians um, on free time, lunch time, on breaks, just to become more familiar with what's in the book, because we won't have time to stop everywhere in the book. And it's a rich book, so I would encourage you to spend some time there. I'd like to start where Paul does in the very first chapter in verse 17. And here's what Paul says in verse 17. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, 
but to preach the good news, the gospel. And not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. And that's an interesting refrain that Paul comes back to throughout first, second chapter, even into the third chapter, is that Paul wants to preach and keep preaching a very plain gospel. That is, that the good news needs not to be dressed up with a lot of fancy words or fancy ideas. Bare bones, burlap kind of presentation of the gospel. Why? Because he's dealing with people who are immersed in a culture where wisdom and knowledge is really, really valued. So rhetoric is important to this group of people, and well-spoken, articulate messengers are received well. And so Paul said, I don't want you to receive me well. I, I want you to receive me plainly. I want to give you something that's not remarkable at all. I'm not going to dress it up at all, because I don't want anything to take away from the central message of the cross. I don't want Christ to lose its power. The power is the idea, not the window dressing, not the framing of it. And it's also interesting that Paul says here that Christ didn't send me to baptize. And here, this is really important, because some of us grew up in traditions where being a Christian and getting baptized were synonymous. That was the same thing. Many of us grew up in traditions like that. Here's Paul separating those out. He's saying there is a ministry for baptism and what goes along with that. That's not what Christ called me to do. Christ called me to preach the gospel. So he sees those things as distinct. And here he mentions that in the very first chapter as he's starting to interact. Now, last week, Pastor Jeremy preached out of 1 Corinthians. He preached out of the 15th chapter, which is very near the end. And if you turn to the 15th chapter, he did the last half. We're going to look at the first half. And if you look at the very first verse of chapter 15, Paul says this. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preached to you before. When? When he was on his missionary trip, when he was in Corinth for those 18 months. The good news, the very first thing Paul ever talks about, the gospel. And he says here in chapter 15, let me remind you of what I established the church and all of you on. And then he continues. It is this good news that I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. Verse 2. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you that uh, what was most important and what had also been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. So there it is, core of the gospel, Christ died for our sins. There's a lot wrapped up in that little phrase, Christ died for our sins. I want to talk about those very simple words in just a moment, but let's continue. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve, and after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers one, at one time, most of whom are still alive. 
though some have died. And then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. What we learn, among other things, is that the content of our faith matters, not just that we believe something deeply, or that we have a heartfelt, devotional belief in God or in Jesus. Those are great things. But Paul takes the time to unpack some of the actually important facts that we need to give assent to, that we need to agree, yes, that does describe ultimate reality. Yes, that is true, not just for me, but for all people at all times. Those kinds of facts, those kinds of truths, that's what Paul says is wrapped up in the saving gospel, the gospel that saves you. But he said back in chapter 1, I don't want to dress this up. So what is it that Paul wants his, his readers, that Corinthian church, to focus on that isn't the dressing, but is the core of the gospel? The cross is foolishness to those perishing, but the power of God for those who believe. If we look back in chapter 1, picking up in verse 18, Paul says this, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. And by the way, our tradition in the West here is more like the Greeks. So if you were to walk into the academy today and name the name of Jesus, the scorn and scoffing that you would get and, and the pitiable glances, that would be the same attitude that Paul would be describing here represented by the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say, it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So I want to try to replicate Paul's basic, stupid, offensive, message of the cross in its barest essential. Something that I think you could fit on the back of a napkin. Some of you have seen this before. All right, so it's going to start out number one. And there are four elements to the basic message of the gospel. First one is, that's a heart. I don't know if you can see that. That's a heart. And what I'm describing there is that God loves people. Even though you might not be able to see it, he's happy because he has a relationship with God. How do we know that God loves us? Because you know that not every religious tradition starts with a God who is personal, emotional, volitional, rational. Um, not every religion starts with a God like that. So this God of the Bible, the ancient Hebrews, 
they interacted with a God who wanted to have a personal friendship with the people who called him Savior, God, Lord. He wanted to hang out with them. He wanted to have a relationship with them that wasn't like a king-servant. It was like family, like dad and kids, like family. That's the God of the Bible. And that's how he started things, in the garden, relationship. They hung out. They had a good time. I'm sure that they were laughing. God's got a great sense of humor. Taught some jokes to Adam, I'm sure. So funny stuff, happy stuff, connected stuff. That's the very first stopping point on the story of the Bible, that God loves people. He loves them. Not because they're good, but because he loves them in the same way that you'd love your kids, even though they're not good all the time. You love them. And I just want to spend time with my kids. That's how God feels about people. The story, of course, doesn't end there. What happens? We know that for Adam and Eve, something separated them, right? What separated God from people? And that was sin. So if I had Bible verses that I was going to use to try to connect these things, the first one I'd use for God-loving people is John 3.16. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That talks about the love of God for people. Sin. Romans 3.23 is one of the verses that I would use to talk about sin. That all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. For most of us, that's not a stretch, right? I know that we do wrong things. I, I admit that. <clears throat> That's fine to admit that. The problem becomes how do you fix that? How do you fix the fact that we're all sinners and we've all violated the character and nature of God? We've violated the terms of the relationship. We have broken covenant faith promise with God because of sin. And what does that add up to? Well, that adds up to separation. How do we bridge the gap? And that is where the cross fits in. So some verses that I would use here would be Romans, and that are, that's R-O-M, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. And the Bible recognizes that you are eternal, so when you die, you, that means you're separated from God. Temporarily now... And forever if you die in a state of separation from God. So there's a lot of urgency that God has to resolve this separation this side of eternity. A lot of energy that God puts into resolving that gap this side of eternity. So the cross, the wages of sin is death. Death is separation. Your sin, my sin, that's the consequence of our sin. Romans 6.23 goes on to say, but the gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ. The gift of God is Jesus Christ. So Romans tells us we're all sinners, sin separates and leads to death, but the gift of God is Jesus Christ. So Romans 5.8, that's another one that I would put on there, Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us basic idea. This is not rocket science. 
that Jesus Christ bore the weight of our sin. Last week we talked about that, that he actually became sin for us. So he took on the penalty and the separation from our sin onto himself. And God said that that was what he would accept, the innocent substitute taking the penalty for sin. That's something that the Hebrews knew about in antiquity. That's why they had lambs that they would slaughter. That's what Passover was all about back in Egypt in antiquity, all the way up through to the time of Jesus Christ. Jewish families killed a lamb, spread the blood of the lamb on the altar to represent the cost, the death, the separation of their sin, and that an innocent substitute could be accepted in their place if it was perfect, if it aligned with God's uh, direction. So that's the cross. The cross is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That innocent substitute was accepted by God, but not in a way that had to be repeated every year like the Lamb or Passover. It was a once and for all change that forever changed how God was able to connect with people. So that's, there's one more element to this very simple message of the cross, and that comes out of Romans 10, verse 9. And that is, it's not enough that Jesus Christ died. It's not even enough, as Paul talked about in chapter 15 of this book, 1 Corinthians, it's not enough that he rose from the dead. It's not even enough that he appeared to a whole bunch of people who could say, yeah, I, I saw him. I interacted with him after he rose from the dead. It was real. That's not enough. That doesn't automatically restore your relationship with God. What restores your relationship with God is when you choose personally to believe that. When those facts become true in your testimony, in your belief system, yes, that's true. Yes, I believe that. And when that happens, let's see if I can get my little guy. There he goes. Yay. Jesus Christ allows us to have a restored relationship with God, not because we're good, not because we stop sinning, not because there are religious rituals that we can do to lower the impact of our sin. There's zero things the Bible says you can do to mitigate or get rid of the sin in your life. Zero things you can do to get rid of the sin in your life and the impact that it creates in your separation from God, except for one thing. And that is believing that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin, and that's it. And that's it. You just believe that. So that's the bare-bones message of the gospel. It's simple enough that you could do it on a napkin. I could explain this to an eight-year-old, right? It's not dressed up in a lot of philosophical language. Very, very simple. There's got to be more to it, right? It's got to be more complicated than that, right? Don't you have to show God that you want it? Don't you have to earn it? Don't you have to cooperate? As long as we're talking about belief as the mechanism for cooperation, then yeah. If you're talking about adding any other religious ritual or obedience 
then no, we're not on the same page anymore. Because the bare bones gospel is belief. Belief in the message, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul's cornerstone for his community in Corinth was that, the gospel. The very basic, simple gospel. That's what I wanted to start with today. Now, I'm not going to ask you to, but if I were to ask you to raise your hand and say, how many of you have understood that gospel, that good news, that bare bones? How many of you understood that? And how many of you personally believe that that is true? If I were to ask you to raise your hand, I know that many, many hands today would go up. Many of you have said, yes, I understand that, and I believe that. Okay, that's good. One challenge for you guys who are here saying that to me in your hearts. Who have you shared that with in the last 12 months? Kind of sat down and talked someone through that bare bones, basic gospel. There been anyone that you've shared that with, had a spiritual conversation that you kind of wanted to see if it would go that direction? Any intentional conversations, family, friends? I know that some of you have, but I know that others of you have to go back farther than 12 months. If you remember, in November, we had this giant bridge up here, and we invited everyone to come up and walk across the bridge. Many of you were here. You picked up a Sharpie, and we invited you to write on the bridge. And we invited you to write the name of someone who was a friend or a loved one, a neighbor, an associate from your business dealings, somebody. Write their name on the bridge, and that represents your interest in lifting that person up to the Lord and praying for an opportunity to be a bridge builder in their life or that God would bring someone into their life to bridge the gap between where they are and the gospel. That was a really cool time. It's a neat moment. That bridge is outside um, in the field next to the pond out behind the church. I'd invite you, if you haven't, as an act of devotion, grab a Sharpie and write the name of someone who's come to your mind lately or if you didn't have an opportunity to do that, I'd encourage you to hop out there and do that. My challenge to those of you who know that the cornerstone of community is the gospel is to share it. Share it. Share it just like I did, those four little points, basics. And if some of you want, hey, can you give that to me again, Pat? I'll be happy to. Shoot me an email. I'll send you the diagram, okay? But let's share like Paul shared the cornerstone of genuine community. And lastly, we finish today with communion. We celebrate communion to remember and announce the new covenant, Paul says to the church in Corinth. For I passed on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me. 
as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. One note about the very first thing Paul says in this section. For I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord himself. Paul said it. He said, like somebody who was born at the wrong time, I saw the Lord too, and I saw him last of all. And the Lord Jesus passed on to Paul this, this information, because if you know your Bible, you know that Paul wasn't in the upper room. He wasn't eating the Last Supper with the disciples. He was probably with the group of people plotting to kill Jesus. That's probably where Paul was. He was probably in the room when Judas came and threw his 30 coins of silver and said he didn't want it anymore. That's, that's who Paul ran with at that time. His name was Saul. But when Jesus gets a hold of a life, he turns it upside down. And he changes people's orientation to how they live life. And he did it with Paul. And for all of you here who name the name of Jesus, he's done it for you too. And you know it. We're going to celebrate communion today. And we're going to do it according to our tradition. This tradition, Faith Church, the Evangelical Free Church of America, we're part of a very long line of, of Christians who see these elements, the body and blood of Jesus, as a memorial, that we do these things to remember. That's called a memorial view of the Lord's Supper. That's different than a sacramental view. A sacramental view says that these elements are a special vehicle through which God allows you to experience his special presence in a way that you can't experience in any other way. At Faith Church, we don't think that the Bible actually teaches us that. This is a sacred, meaningful moment that we're called to observe, to remember and announce the death of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the doorway through which the whole world is reconciled to God. You proclaim that when you take these elements, and it, and it creates for you a sacred moment. But what is powerful about this experience is not the, the bread and the blood. It is the Holy Spirit empowering you to understand what God has said and to participate with him as a member of his family because of your belief in Jesus Christ. So Paul, because of that, goes on to say this in verses 27 and 28 of that same chapter. So anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord and unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. So Paul tells this group of people, just like us, hey, brothers and sisters, hey, church, what we're doing here is really, really important. And even though it's memorial and not sacramental, even though that's true, you can still take these elements in a way that is unworthy, and therefore you can subject yourself to the judgment of God. Paul's invitation to his church in Corinth is, let's not do that. Says, what we need to do as we're preparing to take the elements is to reflect on our life and ask the Lord, is there anything, is there any way in me which you need to be changing? 
fellowship, relationship, connection. God wants a love relationship with you. Is there anything that's in the way? For some of you, it might be that you don't have a relationship with him, that that's not something that you have identified as a priority in your life. I would invite you, if that's where you're at, I respect that, I would defer on taking the body and blood of Christ through the elements. I would wait if that's where you're at. If you do know the Lord, I would encourage you to take this body and blood of Jesus Christ, the cracker and the juice, in a way in which you are somberly reflecting and examining your life. 